You know, I love history. I love to read history. I love to talk about history. I like good historical movies. I'll even on occasion submit myself to historical fiction, but it's got to be super well done. But one of the periods of history that I find fascinating is World War II. World War II is a period in the history of uh, this world that brings out some amazing stories. Stories of the best and the worst of humanity. And often those stories are interwound, interwoven, one with another. One of the stories that is little known, I think, that comes from World War II is the story of the rescue of the Danish Jews, the Jewish population of Denmark, from extermination at the hands of the Nazis. When Germany overran Europe, they overran Denmark. The nation quickly capitulated and was granted a a measure of uh, autonomy and self-rule. There was a population of Jewish people who lived in Denmark. And what makes the really the story of this, the tale of this, so inspiring, so incredible, is that eventually the, the, the Nazi killing machine caught up to Denmark as well and sought to exterminate the Jewish population. Yet the Danish people, at great personal cost, risk, and sacrifice sheltered the Jewish population in their own homes often, provided for them, and eventually transported 99% of them across the sea to neutral Sweden. Over 99% of the Jewish population of Denmark, that is about 7,800 people, escaped the death camps. It really is an incredible story. There is a, a film, and I don't do this very often, but there is a wonderful family film that I would commend to you that, that dramatizes the, the events of this particular thing. It's called uh, Miracle at Midnight. Miracle at Midnight, and... As I say, it's a, it's a good film. It's a film to watch with your family. Tremendous sacrifice. Beloved, because compassion reflects the heart of God, it is woven into the Mosaic law. You can't read the Old Testament with any kind of careful attention and not come away with an understanding that that God cares about the the downtrodden, about the poor, about the afflicted. It's woven in the Mosaic Law and thus was very much woven into Israelite society. That ethic carried over into the New Testament, into the church. The people of God have always cared for one another. And they have cared for others who needed help. People who would come under the protection of the wings of the God of Israel. In the New Testament, James calls it a sign of pure and undefiled religion. To care for those in need. Paul tells the Jerusalem council that he was eager as part of his his missionary strategy to provide for the poor. It's woven in. Jesus himself and his public ministry is is characterized by many, many miracles and, and acts of compassion for people. 
Now, it's not naked compassion. It's not just compassion for the sake of compassion. These miracles, these, these acts and deeds of compassion have a, have a spiritual message to convey. Jesus was giving to the nation a, a, a foretaste, a glimpse of the kingdom of God. He, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, and let me show you what it will look like. And so he banished disease from Galilee for 18 months. He fed the poor. He ministered to the afflicted. He preached the gospel. One writer talking about this coming kingdom says, quote, It is a time when the crooked shall be made straight, and all moral inequalities and contradictions shall be resolved. I like the way he says that. The coming kingdom is going to be an amazing time. But right now we live in a time and in a day and an age when the kingdom is not here. And there's all kind of misery that stalks the human condition. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to this morning look beginning in verse 31. I have hopes to finish all the way to verse 46, but I don't know. We'll see. This is a difficult passage. This is a passage about judgment. I'll let you in on a a secret here. Preachers don't really like speaking about judgment. It's, It's not the topic you sit in your office and you think, okay, what do I want to talk about next Sunday? Oh, I got it. Let's find some really hard judgment passage and and just hammer away on that. I mean, that's one of the beauties of of an expositional ministry, of course, as we go through the, the scriptures, verse by verse, line by line, right? Chapter by chapter, we're forced to deal with what God brings to us. And he brings to us here a, a passage about judgment, and it's a difficult passage. Now, let's establish a few things as we approach this. The passage here on judgment, beginning in verse 31 and running through verse 46, is confused by some people. And the confusion is that that they believe that Jesus is talking here about the great white throne judgment spoken of in Revelation chapter 20 in verses 13 through 15. This is not the great white throne judgment here. This is a passage that is commonly called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. This is the sheep and goat judgment. This is not the great white throne judgment. At the great white throne judgment, all present are condemned and all are are consigned to the lake of fire. The judgment spoken of in Revelation 20, verses 13 to 15 the judgment of the great white throne, no one who appears there escapes, but all are condemned and assigned to the lake of fire. The the judgment spoken of here, not all are condemned. Some are commended, others are condemned. So we're talking about a different judgment. Beyond that, the, the judgment of the great white throne occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom prior to the ushering in of the eternal state. The judgment spoken of here precedes the millennial kingdom. It comes following the tribulation, but it precedes the millennial kingdom, and it is a judgment to determine who enter into the millennial kingdom and who are consigned to the lake of fire and miss out on Messiah's kingdom. It was an entirely different judgment. This judgment determines, the sheep and goat judgment here determines who will enter into Messiah's kingdom in physical bodies like yours and mine. And there they will live and there they will will populate the millennial kingdom. 
and who are refused entrance, excluded from Messiah's kingdom, and consigned ultimately to the lake of fire following the great white throne judgment. This judgment spoken of here is is the wrath to come that John the Baptist warned the nation of. Flee the wrath to come. This is the wrath to come. So, let's take a look here. And uh, my outline is uh, simple for us this morning. It's, it's five words. I just have a five-word outline. It's just something to kind of hang our thoughts on as we, as we progress through this. So, it's five words that elaborate this important end-time event. Five words to elaborate this important end-time event. The first word is setting. The setting of this judgment. Verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, contextually, the the themes that are introduced here actually go back to chapter 24 and verses 29 to 31. Because there, Jesus had been had been speaking of his coming, his, his second coming, following the time of Jacob's trouble, following the seven-year tribulation. And so I want you to see the similarities here to know that this is the event we're talking about. It's the judgment that follows the return of Christ. So notice, for example, the, the mention of the glory, the Shekinah glory. Back in chapter 24 and and verse uh, 29 and uh, and following, verse uh, 30 actually, says they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Notice over in chapter 25, verse 31, and the Son of Man comes in his glory. So this this, this is a reference to the identical event. It's the coming of Christ that displays his Shekinah glory, his great glory. Glory. I want you also to, to notice the, the role of the angels. So back in chapter 24, we see uh, verse 31. He'll send forth his angels with a great trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So there's a, there's a gathering function for the angels who accompany Christ at his return, at his second coming. Back to chapter 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him. So it's the same event. The angels are with Christ. And they serve a gathering function. You'll notice in verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him. How will they be gathered? The angels will gather them. So there's a gathering function. Third, notice the use of the title Son of Man. You'll see verse 30, chapter 24, then the sign of the Son of Man. The sign of the Son of Man. Chapter 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes. Now, Son of Man was the title that Jesus used most often to refer to himself. He is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a direct yet veiled reference, and he veiled it because he didn't want the Jewish authorities to crucify him early. He veiled the reference, but it's a clear reference to Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. Now, we've looked at this more than one time. I'm not going to have time to take you back there, but it's there in the vision in Daniel 7 where the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and receives his kingdom. It is a title for the Messianic king. It is a clear, it is an unimpeachable uh, title for the Messianic king. And Jesus here is referring to himself as the Messianic king who is coming to establish his kingdom, having received it from the hand of the Father, the Ancient of Days. So, we're talking about the coming of the king prior to the establishment of his kingdom. Now, To establish his kingdom, there needs to be a determination of who the citizens of the kingdom will be. Who will come in 
and who will be locked out, who will, will the door will be opened for and who the door will be slammed shut for. And so this judgment here, and in this judgment, uh, it's going to, to speak of, of the, one of those groups that is going to be ushered into this kingdom. Now, the citizens of the kingdom, let's, again, some of this stuff is just sort of review woven in here, but the, the citizens of Messiah's kingdom are really uh, a number of different groups of people. So it will be the resurrected saints of the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints. It will start with Adam and it will proceed all the way down through the, the saints of the Old Testament. They are the ones that Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 prophesied will be raised from the dead and will enter into Messiah's kingdom. So it's the resurrected Old Testament saints. And they will be resurrected at this place. It will be the church. It will be the church. They will be citizens of the kingdom. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 speaks of us, the church, as citizens of the kingdom. So we will enter the kingdom. Beyond that, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, speaks of the tribulation martyrs, those who give their life rather than deny the testimony of Messiah during that horrible seven-year period. Many seal their testimony with their own blood, and they will be resurrected and enter into Messiah's kingdom. And then the fourth is the group spoken of here. It is the righteous. The righteous people who are living in earthly bodies like yours and mine at the time Messiah comes. They are the righteous and they will enter into Messiah's kingdom. Now, specifically in the, in the judgment spoken of here, we find three groups of people, right? Three classes. We have the sheep, we have the goats, and we have Jesus' brethren. So we have three classes of people that he will introduce here. And uh, two of those classes, that is the sheep and Jesus' brethren, will enter into the kingdom with him. Now, without giving away the punchline, we'll talk about who Jesus' brethren are as we get a little bit further. And, of course, we'll talk about the sheep. But there is, a, there is one class of people that is specifically excluded, and they are the goats. Okay? So we're talking about who is invited into the kingdom. And the people here, spoken of here, are uh, alive in physical bodies at the time of the Messiah's return. Right? Following the campaign of Armageddon, Jesus will, um, by the agency of his angels, gather together before him all the living people of the earth. Now, many, many, many will die. You read the book of Revelation and you read the horrific death tolls in the book of Revelation. And so the many, many, many billions will be slaughtered during that seven-year period. But there will be those who live through it. And it is they who will be gathered here. All right? So, the setting. The next word is separation. So given the setting, there is a separation that occurs. Verses 32 and 33. All the nations, he says, when the Son of Man sits on his throne of glory, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, that's the place of favor, and the goats on his left. Now, Jesus is using an illustration, a cultural illustration, that the people could identify with. At night, when the shepherd would bring the flocks in, there would be a separation that would occur. They would separate out the sheep from the goats, and they would put them into the pens. The sheep, by virtue of their, of their wool exterior, as it were, uh, were able to tolerate the cold night air better. They didn't have to be as close as tightly. The goats were more susceptible to cold, and so they were placed in, in a closer enclosure. Beyond that, you got to milk goats, you don't milk sheep. So the goats would be separated out to be milked. So it was a common thing that people understood. A shepherd separates sheep and goats. All right? And so Jesus builds on that 
common cultural knowledge to, us to, to speak of the judgment, to illustrate the judgment that will occur. Now, I want you to notice in verse 32, it says he will gather all the nations, ethne in the Greek, and this reference to the nations is a, is a reference to the Gentiles. It is the word used to speak of Gentiles. We are the nations. There is one nation, uh, uh, people of God, uh, Israel, and then there's all the rest, and they are the nations. They are the Gentiles. That's the way the world was viewed in that day. And so it says here that Jesus says that all the Gentiles, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will perform a sifting, separating judgment. Now, the separation here will not be a separation into, you know, those of you from uh, America are in this group and those of you from, you know, I don't know, the Congo or in the, oh, well, this Congo doesn't exist anymore, then uh, South Africa and this group. And you know what I'm saying? It's not, a, it's not a separation by geopolitical entities. It's actually an individual separation. So he gathers the Gentiles. That's what's being conveyed here. He gathers the Gentiles and then he separates people out, individuals out, right? To gather the herd, think of it as the shepherd. You gather the herd, sheep, goat, sheep, goat, sheep, goat, sheep, goat. So he's just sifting it out. He's separating it out. The actual judgment itself will be, as I say, on an individual level. So, for example, you can see this in Matthew chapter 13 in the parable there of the dragnet, which speaks of the same event. Matthew chapter 13, verse 47 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. So speaking of the same event, there will be an individual separation. That's important. Very important to remember. Each person will stand before the shepherd and will be sifted in or out, in or out. Now, where will this judgment occur? All the nations will be gathered before him. Where will they be gathered? Where will the judgment occur? The answer is, is we're not positive. We're not positive. However, I'm persuaded that if you go back to Joel chapter 3, that we do have a statement that indicates where the judgment will occur. In Joel chapter 3, it says there in verse 1, For behold, in those days and at that time. Now, do you remember what I told you when you see something that says what? In those days, your mind goes, ah. It's speaking of the future kingdom. Okay? So, in those days, at that time, when I, that is God speaking, restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations." And they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. So the prophet here says, speaking for God, that in, the, in that day, the time of the kingdom, of the return of the king, they will gather together the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Where's the valley of Jehoshaphat? Not sure. Not sure. I think the valley of Jehoshaphat is a valley that doesn't exist yet. I'm convinced that the valley of Jehoshaphat is, will be the valley created when the Lord returns and the Mount of Olives is split and moves north to south. The prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 14 speaks of this event. Listen, 
Uh, that part of the world is absolutely a seismic hotbed. And there's going to be a massive earthquake, the prophets tell us. Verse 4, chapter 14, the prophet Zechariah says, In that day, oh, here we are, same place, in that day, his feet, that is Messiah's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. I have stood on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. I'm persuaded, wouldn't stake my life on it, I'm persuaded that the valley of Jehoshaphat, and that the word Jehoshaphat means uh, Yahweh judges or Jehovah judges, So the valley of the Lord's judgment, I'm convinced, is the valley that is created here at the time the Lord um, splits the Mount of Olives in this this massive earthquake. And, uh, you you know, if you've been there, you're kind of looking around and go, I don't see how this happens, but it happens. And this valley is created when the mountain moves north or east and west and um, uh, north and south, rather, and the valley is created east and west. Okay? So I think that's where it is. That's where, back to Matthew 25, I think that's where the separation occurs. Okay? Do with it what you like. The third word is surprise. Surprise. So setting, separation, surprise. So he has divided the Gentiles. He has put some of them on his right, the place of favor and honor, and he has put some of them on his left. Then... Verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, it is common among many Bible commentators and preachers to refer to this section to support a call to social action. You will see it frequently. We need to feed the poor. Jesus says, when you do it to the least of these, my brethren, you do it to me. There is a biblical mandate for us to go worldwide and to eradicate poverty. The problem with that is that's not what he's talking about here. On the surface, it's powerful. And it's compelling. But it's not what this passage is about. It's not what this passage is about. Jesus is not laying out here an agenda for social action in the 21st century. He is speaking in the context here about the fate of the nation of Israel. Chapters 24 and 25. You remember how it began with the disciples observing the temple, right? And saying how wonderful and how beautiful it was. And he says, not a stone will be left upon another. And it begins. And he is talking about the future fate of the people of Israel. We never can lose sight of that. Beyond that, this passage clearly cannot be a command 
for universally to feed the poor and to care for the downtrodden because in verse 40, the ones that they are commended for caring for are called the least of these brothers of mine. Jesus does not call the people of the world his brothers or his brethren. Never, 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 never. So what is this all about? Clearly, compassion is woven into this passage. No doubt about it. And by application, one could take from this many things with regard to compassion. But let's first understand what it's about before we jump to how we're going to apply it. So let's just start with what it's about. So who are these little ones, the the least of these brethren of mine, my little brothers and sisters, who are they? Who are they? Well, some, some say they are Christians. That's possible. They, they are Christians. So those who care for Christians in need is sort of the way a person would develop it. Others say, well, no, it's, it's, uh, it's Christian missionaries. They're the ones who are, who are the least of my brethren. They're the ones who most are in need of, of being uh, cared for and, and clothed and fed and visited in prison and all those sorts of things. So some say that. The third option is the Jewish people during the days of the tribulation. And that, beloved, I persuaded to the depth of my being is the correct interpretation. It stays within the context. It's what he's continuing to develop. He's talking about the tribulation and the events that follow it with his coming. So I think in the light of the context of the Olivet Discourse, the the people he is speaking of are the Jewish people who are being persecuted by Antichrist. Remember in Revelation 12, when Satan is, is uh, driven from heaven, he, he comes to the earth, he knows his days are short, and it says there in Revelation 12 that he, he begins to persecute the woman. And the vision there, the woman is Israel. So there is an intense persecution of the people of Israel by the Antichrist, by the one whom they thought was going to rescue them, who was going to save them, who was going to ensure their security. So they signed a security pact with him at the beginning of the tribulation, only to find out later he he breaks the pact in the midpoint and turns to become their greatest persecutor. He will make the pogroms of history look tame. These are the least of these brothers of mine. Notice Jesus lists um, six, what I'm convinced are representative areas where the righteous minister to those in need. Right? The hungry, thirsty, strangers, naked, sick, in prison. This speaks of those who are being persecuted, those who are living on the run, those who have everything stripped from them, those who are the most vulnerable. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to ask you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 32 Or to the writer to the Hebrews, calling the people back to faith, reminds them of, of what their life once looked like when, when they first began to follow Messiah. He says, verse 32, chapter 10, he says, But remember the former days when you, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. 
For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. He is, he is reminding the people here of their former manner of life when they identified with the followers of Christ who were being horrendously persecuted and they visited them in prison and they were shared with them even up to and including the the reality that by identifying with these persecuted people they themselves then suffered persecution and they were willing to do it because they could look beyond the temporal and the present and to see the kingdom to come back to Matthew 25 I think that's exactly what's going on here. The sheep are those who, at great personal cost and risk, are ministering to the Jewish people in their greatest hour of need when Antichrist is trying to destroy them all. So they feed them. They give them something to drink. They clothe them. They take them in. They visit them in prison when they're imprisoned. It's interesting here, I I think, in verses 35 and 38, it says, invited me in. Uh, It's interesting to me, synago is the the Greek um, verb here. It's It's a root word from which we get synagogue. And it means to gather together or to collect or to, or to bring together. And, and I think in the, in the context here, it's talking about kindness and hospitality. You gathered together. When you, when you gathered me in, you, you did it by gathering my people in. You extended hospitality to me. The issue of uh, hospitality, of course, is, is um, woven all through the Bible, Old and New Testament. It is one of those things that is to characterize the people of God. They are to be a hospitable people. Why? Because God himself is hospitable. And so we are to reflect his character. So, these sheep here are invited into the kingdom. And they are invited into the kingdom... Because they belong to the king. And they demonstrate the reality that they belong to the king because of how they act towards the people of the king in the most desperate of circumstances. The inner transformation of grace that has occurred in them. Now, you remember the church has been raptured. So the church is gone. So these are people, Gentile people, who have come to faith in Israel's Messiah under the most desperate of circumstances when Antichrist is seeking to wipe out both the Jewish people and any other follower of Christ. And in the moment of their greatest desperation, they will not only believe on Messiah, but they will extend themselves at great personal risk to the children of Messiah. Furthermore, I think it's interesting when you read this that the surprise for them is not that they are invited into the kingdom. Nowhere here does it say or indicate that they are surprised. Oh, me? Really? I get to come in? Really? It doesn't say that at all. In fact, it conveys just the opposite. They expect to be included into the kingdom. What surprises them is the basis of under which they are judged and then their invitation extended. That's the surprise for them. Not the invitation, but rather that it was the loving care of the helpless, which is actually a ministry to Christ himself. 
that is the external proof of the inward faith. Oh, wait a minute. Doesn't James say something like that? Indeed he does. Indeed he does. Notice Jesus identifying himself with his own persecuted people. Again, I'm reminded of, uh, of uh, Acts chapter 9 and the conversion of Saul, right? He's persecuting the church there. And, and on the Damascus road, the vision comes to him and he hears, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No, that's not what he hears. He hears, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Because when you persecute the people of God, it's a persecution of God himself. He kind of takes it personal. The setting, separation, surprise, the sentence. Verse 41 to 45. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Notice the similarity of the language. The similarity of the judgment, the basis of evaluation. The indictment here for the goats is their hardness of heart. They are hard-hearted. They are uncaring. They were unconcerned with the brethren of Jesus. And again, I'm, I'm persuaded it is, the, it is the Jewish followers of Jesus during the tribulation period that they, are, they take no interest in. They do not care for. I mean, notice the, notice the judgment here. It is off into the eternal fire. Off into the eternal fire. Which is another reason, by the way, when those who want to co-opt this section and say that this is, a, this is the biblical support for their prison ministry or whatever, I'm not so sure about that. Because what you're trying to tell me is if I don't get involved in your prison ministry, I'm facing departure into the eternal fires. Okay? I think it proves more than you want it to prove. But notice the people excluded. You know, when we talk about people who are going to hell, people who are consigned to the lake of fire, we often think of people, you know, just gross moral failures and sin, right? But here, the basis of the evaluation of their, of their unbelieving heart is the neglected acts of kindness and charity towards those in need. Now, no doubt, uh, if they thought they could have earned their way into Messiah's kingdom by performing deeds of charity, they would have. Right? It's kind of the surprise thing. If that's all it takes to get into Messiah's kingdom is to, is to perform acts of, and deeds of charity, then I'm on board. But see, you can't manufacture that. Not really. It requires a, a changed heart. It, it requires the transforming grace of God. It requires the love of God to be shed abroad in your heart before you will then respond in faith this way. Finally, he, he says, in summary, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And beloved, when Jesus comes, when he comes, there will be only two possible outcomes. An invitation into the kingdom 
an exclusion and execution and consignment to the lake of fire. You're either citizen of the kingdom or you will be ultimately, finally, and forever banished from the kingdom. Now, I know this is talking, I've been hammering away here. This is talking about a specific Gentile or judgment to come upon the Gentile peoples alive at some day in the future that it's at least seven years beyond today. But there is the principle. There is the principle. You're a citizen of the kingdom or you're not. There's no third option. There's no... Right? Let me go get some more oil and then I'll come in. Too late. So the question for all of us is where are we going? Where are you going? Where is your citizenship? Where are your allegiances? Where is your commitment? What do you really believe? What does your life reflect? We're not talking about perfection. But we're talking about the direction of your life. Who is your king? Who? I mean, I don't think that we can, can, can blow through a passage like this and, and say, yeah, it's talking about Gentiles, the end of the tribulation, and, and how they treated the persecuted Jews under the Antichrist, and wow, got that worked out. Okay, good. And, and I think that's right, and I think you should have that worked out, and it does help fit in the pieces, and that's all important. But certainly by application, we've we, we, we got to come to one, something like this, and we've got to say, okay, this is self-evaluation time. This is time. Right? Where am I? Second Corinthians 13, Paul writes to the church at Corinth in verse 5. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? This is a good passage to do some self-evaluation. Do we identify with who God identifies with? Are we involved in the things God is involved in? Do we care about what he cares about? Where does it all lie? If you know here this morning that definitely if the king were to return today that you're not in, you're out, you know it. then there's really good news for you. The really, really good news for you is there's still time. There's still time. Beloved, there were a lot of people in Paris this past weekend, on a Friday night, who were out to enjoy a Friday night. Some were at a sporting event. Others were out having dinner. Still others were at a concert. Life was pretty much doing okay. Never been to Paris, but I've been told it's a pretty nice place. And in a very short period of time, it changed. And for some, it changed eternally. For some, it changed eternally. For everyone else, 
that is an incredible wake-up call. But will they heed it? Will people hear it? Will we heed it? Will you heed the call? May God grant you his mercy and grace to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If God is working in your heart right now, we're going to pray and we're going to end. I want you to, I want you to come and talk to me. I want to talk to you. Father, um, there is a sobriety that accompanies this passage. And there is a sobriety that accompanies the events in our own world. And it's not every day when these two realities intersect in such a clear and vivid way. Now, Father, you have provided in your mercy and grace an opportunity for each and every one of us, for all who are within hearing of my voice to to take stock of their own future, their citizenship. Where do they belong? Where Where do their allegiance lie? Are the children of the king or are they just faking it? O Lord, may you, in the tenderness of your mercy, examine our hearts. Help us. O Lord, we do not want to bruise the conscience here of of any who are truly your children, yet are weak weak in faith. And yet, Father, there are those who are self satisfied, smug, trusting in all kinds of things, but ultimately trusting in themselves. And there is such a rude awakening coming. O Lord, open their eyes to the truth. Enable them to flee to the cross of Christ. And call out for his mercy and grace that he would save and transform them. Our Father, may you work in our hearts. We who are your children. May you enable us to examine ourselves by your Spirit's enablement to see where our priorities are lined up. In Jesus' name, amen.